Hey, what's up, everybody? This is The Greatest Show on Dirt. I'm your host, Quentin, coming to you from the Sweet Bee Studios. And on today's episode, I've got a guest, um, somebody that kind of found me on Twitter, like a fellow baseball fan. I've got Joe on the line. Joe, how's it going, man? It's doing great. It's great to be on. Uh, man, dude, I appreciate you being on the show for sure because I'm super pumped to have this conversation because I recorded some earlier today. Um, so this episode that you guys are listening to now will probably show up tomorrow, I think on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, the whole nine. Um, but what I had recorded today was a lot about like what baseball free agency looks like, how teams are spending differently, how they're approaching it differently. And um, Joe, me and you had talked a few days ago and you had mentioned about um, the different types of ways people are rebuilding their teams, you know, with, um, you know, like you got a lot of teams doing like full teardowns and we'll, we'll go into that in a second. Um, but first, Joe, I just want to know um, kind of like a little bit about you, um, where people can find you on Twitter, um, what you're talking about on Twitter and kind of what you have planned for your account. All right. So thank you. Um, <clears throat> you can find me on Twitter at Chi-Town, you know, from Chicago, S-H-T-E-L-L-E-R. Um, I'm a baseball account. I do nostalgic things. I do a little banal. I do analysis. I do cool stats. Kind of like a, just like a, it's like a little bit of a different look at the game. And you know, just check me out over there. I'm also going to be launching, uh, not launching. I'm going to be authoring, authoring an article which should, should go up in a couple of weeks. I just I just uh, started working with Ball Off the Wall. You can find them on Twitter at Ball Off the Wall. You can find them on online at BallOffTheWall.com. It's a baseball blog really great stuff going down over there and i'm you know proud, proud to be working with that um that's about it check me out uh, asking questions it's all good that's what's up man so do you know so you've got an article that's going to be up in the next couple of weeks do you um like do you have a topic yet or are you still kind of exploring what you want to talk about with it yeah so i only oh, just the past day i was sitting down i was solidifying what i'm talking about i'm the type of guy that we like trying to take a wide angle view of things you know the a lot of the articles nowadays are all about like the nitty gritty. You know, this guy, in the last month, his his stat cast. You know, his his launch angle changed. I'm like a wide angle guy. Just look at the trends, see what, see what direction things are going. You know, look at our perspective on on the league as a whole. Use a lot of historical examples. So the thing that I was looking into in particular is Mike Trout. You know, Mike Trout is he's the best player, maybe the best player ever, far and the best player in the league. And I was thinking about, you know, in 20 years from now, how are we going to view Mike Trout? And I was thinking, you know, the, the closest historical comp I could think of personally is, you know, as a young guy, from, you know, kid growing up in Seattle, Ken Griffey Jr. You know, Ken Griffey Jr. was elected to the All-Century team in 1999. You know, his first half of his career, pre, pre the age of 30, was historically almost unparalleled. And at the end of his career, you know, everyone knows the historic Ken Griffey Jr., the injuries, yeah. So on and so forth. And our perspective of Ken Griffey Jr. changed dramatically from 1999. You know, the all-century player could be one of the best players of all time, next to Mickey Mantle, to, 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 to the Ken Griffey Jr. that used to play on the Chicago White Sox and the Seattle Mariners and the Cincinnati Reds. Just not the same player. And I was I just wanted to, you know, look at Mike Trout and see, depending on which direction his career goes, how are we going to view him? You know, that's the basic idea. Yeah, yeah, I love that for sure, man, because I think one of the more refreshing things you can get, like with, like, one of the things I love about, like, 
how easy it is to record a podcast and to like how easy it is to communicate with other baseball fans on Twitter is it allows for all these people to come together and just like have these different views about baseball, man. So I love kind of like the route you're going with that to like look at the game differently because um, I mean, that just makes baseball so much more fun to talk about when you talk to somebody who has this like very like, you know, opinion that's so much different than yours to where it opens up this whole new line of thought where like you had mentioned like this nostalgic approach to baseball and I love the fact that you brought up Ken Griffey Jr. and like our first four minutes of conversation so on your Twitter it says you're like a split Mariners and White Sox fan did you grow up a lot in Seattle oh uh, yeah I grew up in Seattle oh, my family is from Chicago so we got like an awkward mix oh yeah yeah I remember there was there was one there was one uh, there was one time that uh, my grandparents so they came in this is in 2005 they came into Seattle for a holiday you know it's just the holiday season and this is uh, this this fell out right around the World Series oh, yeah. and they were going they were they were all going all crazy oh, yeah. now the rest of the city you know didn't give a flip because the Mariners you know I don't know won 75 games and yeah. didn't make flips so it was just like I got all into it as a young fan and that kind of launched me. Into like the White Sox fandom, except I was growing up in Seattle, and the whole city's going on and on about Seattle, going on about the Mariners, and yeah. just they're bad, but they're lovable. So it's just like it's developed into like a, a split fandom, which is like you would think is nearly impossible to work out, you know. But I guess I'm lucky that neither of them have been good at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? because you know, if you really so ran until, into like until now, it's worked out, dude. You, yeah, you, know, you have a problem but, there, but you might, you know, I don't um, know what the Mariners are going to do here in the next few years, but the White Sox, man. So let's go ahead and get into like, and I know when we talked on the phone, you had a lot of different takes on like rebuild strategies with what people are doing. And I know right now half of your allegiance goes to the Chicago White Sox and they have a lot of exciting things going on And the type of rebuild they did. Um, I know they sold a lot of players away. They've lost a lot of games in the last two years. Um, but at least I feel like somehow through the process of them really trading a lot of guys away, like they've literally outside of like Jose Abreu have just traded like everybody that's good like, they've traded them all away. But somehow, like, I don't think they've sacri- made any sacrifices to their fan base because it seems like their rebuild is so exciting. Like, I don't know if, I mean, as a White Sox fan, do you really have a problem with the White Sox losing, like, 90 games a year, like, during this rebuild process? Because at least to me on the outside, because I'm not, like, a diehard White Sox fan, but it seems still yet that they're able to hold on to, like, their fandom and that excitement through the rebuild. Um, so really, I just kind of want your opinion on like how the Sox rebuild looks like, and kind of um, you know your opinion on how you feel like the different rebuilds are and how they affect fan bases and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. You know, like you have the Marlins, and the Marlins are shedding fans by the day. You know, every every deal they make, you know, ostensibly to rebuild, it's just it's killing the fan base. And with the White Sox, you know, their attendance isn't great. Because the product on the field isn't that exciting. You know, personally, I've went to less Sox games in the past couple of years than I used to. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't, hurt, doesn't help that the Cubs are building some sort of dynasty. Yeah. However, something about the White Sox fans is, is um, the White Sox have almost never been good, you know, in their history. And it kind of, and you, and it kind of built up this underdog you know, we're the minority, but we we care the most in the city because the whole city is walking around the Cubs here. And you're the one guy walking through the train station in the Sox cap. And everyone's giving you these looks. Mm-hmm. 
And he just got that chip on his shoulder, like, yeah, I'm going for the Sox, and we're going to be hell good in the, in the next couple of years. You know? And you see just enough of that on the field. You have your Abreu, you have Tim Anderson showing flashes. They called Giolito, they called Mancada. That's just enough to give you a taste of the future. And that keeps, that keeps everyone going. Because he never felt hopeless. Who was had a decent team, and they immediately broke it down. And then the next year, they're already calling up prospects. So we never had that hopeless phase that the Marlins seems to always have. And it seems like really a lot of that, I think, kind of maybe it boils down to like Rick Hahn because I know with like Derek Jeter and their ownership group coming to buy the Miami Marlins, it seems like they didn't communicate with the fans at all. They just kind of like, cause even Derek Jeter would be asked at multiple points. Like, have you talked to Giancarlo Stanton by phone or how have you addressed the fans? And Derek Jeter's just been straight up. Like, that's not my job. I'm not going to do that. But it seems like Rick Hahn, like during this rebuild process, like he's been real transparent with the fan base on like, what the plan has been the whole time and with each move they make like it always just makes sense so I feel like a lot of that just has to do with Rick Hahn being just extremely good at his job like I would put him right now second to maybe Brian Cashman of like the two guys in baseball that are just seem to be making moves that are like perfect you know um so surely like do you think like that has something to do with the White Sox rebuild just going so good Rick Hahn is a great, is a great general manager, and um, that's coming from the Kenny Williams style general managing. Which I don't know if the fan, if the baseball fandom at large is aware of how it was, but it was very veteran oriented. Not you know, it wasn't from the ground up. It was always let's try and get the next guy. Let's trade our pitching prospects for Edwin Jackson, which I'm still upset about. You know, pick up an Adam Dunn. Risky moves that in 2005 everything coalesced and worked, but mm-hmm. you can't rely on that in the future. So the, ch- the change over to Rick Hahn has been very refreshing. Someone who's process oriented, you know, building the team from the ground up the way it's, the way it's supposed to be, and he's built up a level of trust because once you know, when those first moves took place, you're like they're trading Chris Sale. I can't believe they're going to trade Chris Sale. Then you 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 turn open up Twitter and everyone's like the White Sox just completely won this deal. And then Adam Eaton come, comes a few weeks later, and just he just immediately built up that sense of trust with the fans. Mm-hmm. And, and how do we trust? That's how it works. <laughs> now, what? Now, when we talked on the phone the other day, you had mentioned like a couple different types of rebuilds that you wanted to explain, correct? Right. So tell me what you got, man. So when it comes to rebuilds, rebuilds, and I, I'm not talking about the grand scale rebuild, but just in regards to one specific. Know, aspect. So you have teams that that are trying to acquire surplus value, you know, be it in prospects or in money or whatever the case may be. And their ways of acquiring prospects seem to sh- there seems to be two different you know divergent paths of doing so. For example, you have the San Diego Padres. Now their team in a bit of a state of dysfunction. I'm sure AJ probably knows what he's doing, but the rest of us seem to be very unclear as to what's going on. You know, they just they just recently they uh, they acquired uh, this fellow Brian Mitchell from the Yankees, and you know, and, and he was packaged along with Chase Headley. Now Chase Headley has he has about thirteen million dollars worth of salary. That was a, a price that the Yankees, who want to expand payroll, just decided. You know, this is a guy we can cut loose, and the way they cut loose is they'll package him with someone who's good, a prospect, and we'll dump him to some team that has a lot of cap space. You know, a very NBA style trade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's one, and that seems to be one way of acquiring talent. There's been a lot of 
you know, rumors flying around and circulating about Jacoby Ellsbury, how if he were to waive his no-trade clause, perhaps he could be packaged with another, you know, good prospect or two. And then you have the teams who just are trading stars, trading quality players, picking up a prospect here, where they're packaging a few relievers, you know, the David Robertson, Tommy Canely, Todd Frazier deal to the Yankees, which netted Blake Rutherford, who's a, a very solid prospect. They're just trading stars from what they have and getting rid of it. Now, obviously, every team can do this. You know, the Padres don't really have a star. Mm-hmm. They have Will Myers. You know, how much can you get for Will Myers? And it seems to me that these two teams are going about different ways of building based off who they are, based off their team's identity. The, team, the White Sox were a team full of stars and scrubs. So they traded the stars, kept the scrubs, but they got, they got good stuff back for the, for the stars. The Padres, which were a more middling team talent-wise beforehand, even though the results were very similar, they have, they have to go at this through a different route, which I thought was a very interesting idea, you know, the way different teams are adapting to the market. You know? And the Padres are basically having to go that route because they don't have the stars that the White Sox had, right? Exactly. And, and, they, and kudos to H. Preller for, you know, for latching onto this idea of pick, picking up salary and getting you know, the value back in return. Yeah, yeah. Now, let me ask you this, though. Do you think, because there's been a lot of talk I think this off season where you've had like Tony Clark, um, who's like the head of like the MLB players union talking about how teams right now are just like in a race to the bottom. And then Scott Boris is pretty freaking out right now because he's saying that teams are basically racing to the bottom and half of the teams now in baseball, um, he, this isn't true, but he exaggerated this. Like half the teams in baseball aren't even competing anymore. Are either one of these types of rebuilding, do you think either one of those methods is hurting baseball right now? Um, that's a great question. I would say that the trading of stars for talent is not an issue per se. It's how it's always been done, right? Yeah. What ends up happening is, is right now we have a situation where the league is very polarized. You know, you have the Yankees, the Dodgers, and they're just assembling stars trying to beat out the other, the other super teams. And then teams like the White Sox are benefiting from that, obviously, but they're, end up, they're inevitably going to, be, going to be in the cellar. And it's all part of the natural cycle of baseball. Yeah. But it's the, way it's, the way it's turned out, and I, was, I actually was thinking the other day that perhaps the new playoff structure might contribute to that, and I'll address that a little, you know, in a bit. But the, um, the super team you know, thing that we have going on in baseball, which you also have in NBA, a lot of parallels. I don't think it's good for the game. And I think Tony Clark is right in that aspect. Because, you know, you have, well, you have, what ends up happening is, is you have this, this echelon of teams that are pretty much untouchable. And those are the division winners. And maybe there maybe uh, four good, four super teams in one league, and they end up having one race for a while, you know, for a division. But the other teams are going to get that first wild card. And then you have just a whole lot of, you know, kind of like Samaritan Moneyball. It was like, there's 29 teams, a whole lot of trash, and then us. So it's kind of like that now in the middle of the league. So you have these great teams, you have a whole lot of trash, and you have the rest of the league. And that doesn't, that's not conducive for competition. And, you know, Jared Depoto said recently that there's more teams trying to get the first pick of the draft than are going series. And I think he's and, um, 100% right about that because it's just like, crazy how like I look at you know what the Pittsburgh Pirates did where it was only in 2015 they were a 98 win team and then all of a sudden now they've kind of just sold everyone off um and like 
you know, they've basically just broken down that whole entire city to the point where I think Pittsburgh Pirate fans had a petition going to try to get Bob Nutting to, like, sell the team because it seemed like he wasn't wanting to invest at the trade deadline to get this Pittsburgh Pirates team over, like, this wild card hump. And part of me thinks, like, that your answer is correct because it, it's bad for baseball. And I think, like, the Miami Marlins and, like, the Pittsburgh Pirates, with the way they've handled their teams, um, it hasn't been good for baseball. And they've really broken down their fan bases, Miami more so than anything. But then the other part of me looks at what you just said of like, hey, Major League Baseball is this cycle of like you're good and then you're not good. And that's just the nature of building a farm system. But then I can't help to point at the Chicago White Sox. And I don't know if this is me having like a partial bias to the White Sox because, yeah, I grew up in Illinois and I grew up a Cubs fan. But White Sox games were on WGN as well. So, like, I don't hate the White Sox. I don't have, like, this weird, like, I'm a Cubs fan, and if you're in the subway with the White Sox hat, I'm going to, like, knock you down at all. You know what I mean? But, like, I look at the way the White Sox handled it, and, like, part of me just wonders how much of this is bad for baseball because of, like, how upper management's handling it. Because I feel like the White Sox have handled it really well, and somehow, like, they've kept their fan base excited. Um but then when you've got, like, Pittsburgh Pirates fans signing a petition and Miami Marlins fans just, I mean, gosh, they've never had a chance. I'm so torn on this because, like, I look at the Chicago White Sox and I really feel like Rick Hahn's building a team to win, kind of like what Theo Epstein's done. But then other teams that are doing the rebuild process, which this question won't answer itself for a couple of years, I don't know how much I trust them. You know what I mean? That's definitely true. A lot of it has to do with the way it's given over to the fans, advertising, yeah. you know, propaganda, or whatever. But in, but in, in a practical sense, if you have the White Sox, when the White Sox were tearing down, it was after the Cubs and Astros had torn down, and they were already on the way up. And the White Sox started tearing down. There weren't any, There were very few teams which were in the same straits, so they're able to take advantage. It was very much a seller's market in the Pat Eaton, Chris Sale trade winter. You look at it now, you have these great stars, Giancarlo Stanton, and his, yeah, the, he had the money, but you have these great stars, and they're not really not fetching that much on the market because it's a buyer's market. Who are you trading to? You can't trade to the Mariners. They're maxed, you know, for example, because they're maxed out pretty much. They don't really have any prospects to give. The teams, the teams that have prospects either are keeping them, and, you know, and they're going to promote them and hopefully build up the system, or they're a great team like the Yankees. And there's only so many of those teams. It's very much a buyer's market now. Mm-hmm. So how? So you, if, you, if you're telling me that if the Tampa Bay Rays decide to rip down now, which they're doing, getting getting rid of Evan Longoria, yeah. they're not going to be able to get that much. You know, they could be like, win 70 games and be the fifth pick. And they're not going to get. It's a, it's a buyer's market. It's really not a great time to rebound, re, re, to rebuild, because everyone's doing it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think the, the Pirates fans were latching onto that, and they said. Two years ago, we had a great core. We still have the core. Have a bounce back, add a free agent, maybe bring in Eric Hosmer or something, and all of a sudden, our team's looking very good again. Why are you Why are you tearing down? You know, so blatantly, and in, in such a market that just is really not conducive for it. Yeah, because there's no way this can hold. Because what you said, what you just mentioned about Jerry Depoto's comment about how you've got more teams now fighting for the number one pick, like now, like. You can't just tank and get the number one pick because so many teams are doing it. And, yeah, I think you're 100% right about the Pittsburgh Pirates because, to me, baseball is different. It's so much different than any other sport because, for example, you look at the Minnesota Twins. 
in 2016, losing like 103 games, and then the next year making the playoffs. And I don't think the Pittsburgh Pirates made a lot of crazy moves in that particular offseason. And like what you said, you just never know if the Pirates could have kept that core, added a couple guys, and really just had a good season. Um, but I'm curious kind of, you know, how this whole free agent thing will play out. And then maybe this whole... Um, you know, with Tony Clark saying race into the bottom and you have all these teams doing this full breakdown rebuild, maybe at some point it levels off to where, um, you know, the Yankees might not be a good example because they have so much payroll, but it was only two off seasons ago where the Yankees traded off Andrew Miller, traded off Aroldis Chapman, but then like it somehow still worked out for him. And then the next year they're going to the ALCS, you know, um, but I haven't been more perplexed in any offseason than I have this offseason. Like, when I record a podcast, I barely know what to say because I'm just so dumbfounded on what to say about it, you know? Yeah, you just have a bunch of relievers signing the same two years, $9 million contracts. That's all that's happened, pretty much, till today. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't believe it. And the Cubs got you, Darvish, for a pretty good price. I feel like $21 million, I think, is like the average annual value of that. And I mean... I, you know, some people were commenting on, like, I think I posted something on Facebook for the podcast, and I had a couple people comment that they thought that was overpriced. But, like, you know, I think Zach Granke a couple years ago signed for $200 million, so I think the buyer's market's still holding up. I guess the Cubs got a pretty good deal today, and then, you know, maybe Jake Arrieta goes somewhere for probably a price lower than that. But, um, gosh, who knows what will happen, you know. I'm just curious to see how this rebuilding strategy goes. And my number one thing with this has always been the fans because, you know, when they, gosh, you know, when people talk about, like, collusion and teams tanking and players being unhappy, the number one thing I don't want to see happen when the CBA's up is any sort of strike or strike talk. And that's my number one concern with this whole rebuilding process is just hurting the fan base, which I think is one of the reasons, like, I'm so happy that Rick Hahn has handled it so well. But then when I look at the Miami Marlins, it's just endlessly fr frustrating that they've kind of handled it like that. But, man, who knows? Um, well, I guess we can kind of close this up, man. We're at 22 minutes. Do you have anything else to add, my friend? Um, not much. About the CBA that you were mentioning, there's a, there's a few troublesome signs. And I guess anyone who's out there listening to this, call me up in three years and tell me if I was right or if I was wrong. But right now, this is not the previously signed CBA. The players had given a bunch of concessions, especially in regards to international signing. And one of the concessions, which is causing a lot of problems now, now besides for the Tony Clark, you know, Scott Boris situation, but the thing about, you know, Rob, Rob Manfred has really made it, has really championed, uh, slow, you know, affecting, speeding up the game. And in the previous CBA, the players, for whatever reason, they signed off on a unilateral commissioner decision. He could just do whatever he wants to speed up the game. And then just now he's putting in some pretty heavy-looking, you know, penalties, 18-second pitch clocks, of, you know, penalties. You've got a ball if you're over on the clock, things like that. And I'm wondering if the, if the players may have shot themselves in the foot and if we might see, you know, ramifications in the next CBA signing. Because they do not have a lot of leverage now. Because, you know, their biggest thing before was the international market, how you had players like Mankata signing for $50 million, or that's with the penalties and whatever. 
signing for tremendous amounts of money, and then that's all just wiped clean with this new bonus system. And I don't know what they have left. And they're very upset about this. And I'm not saying there's going to be a strike, but we're already seeing a lot of a lot of tension and things coming to the surface that we have not seen for 20 years. Yeah. Scary. And I hope nothing happens. Yeah. But, it's um like I know maybe it was a couple weeks weeks ago I was reading an article I think it was on Sports Illustrated where. Kenley Jansen was being interviewed and kind of threw out the idea like, hey, you know, if we have to strike, you know, that's something we'll have to do. And, you know, when you throw in like them not having any power and, you know, Rob Manfred having the power, first first of all, like to unilaterally impose like the pitch clock and all the ball and strike penalties and stuff. I hope that never happens. And I've got like a whole like case on pace of play to where like I – I, the the rules he wants to enact, like, I don't think, like, I think he thinks they want to help baseball, but I just can't see, like, I side with the players on this. I can't see where a pitch clock will help out a whole lot um, with that sort of stuff. And I do not like the idea of him unilaterally imposing stuff when the players are against it. Because I feel like if the players are against this, a lot of it's because they're not ready for a lot of these unilateral changes. And at that point, I feel like gameplay is going to suffer. And then if gameplay suffers, then the product's going to suffer. Then the players aren't happy. And I definitely do not like the idea of that. But my thing, when it comes to, like, pace of play, whether we want to, like, enact a pitch clock or um, have, like, you know, don't let batters get out of the batter's box so often. I know a couple weeks ago, um, Rob Manfred had said that he would not unilaterally impose these things if players could keep the game time at two hours and 55 minutes or below. Did you see that? It was like maybe a week or so ago to where Rob Manfred. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of backlash with that. At least I saw on Twitter and a lot of sports writers would talk about how like Rob Manfred shouldn't have done that because he's basically like a parent telling his kid, well, if you can get good grades, I'll give you an allowance. You know, there wasn't a lot of like positive feedback behind that comment by Rob Manfred, but I personally loved it. Because I think the best thing Rob Manfred can do is instead of unilaterally imposing all of these rules is to empower the players. Because I think it's getting to a point now where you got players like Justin Turner and many others tweeting about pace of play and how a lot of the stuff that Rob Manfred wants might not help the game. I think this point, the players understand how much of a deal it is and Major League Baseball players want to see the game to succeed. I I would trust Major League Baseball players much more to run Major League Baseball than I would the owners and all the rule makers. And I really think what Rob Manfred did in that situation was good because I really don't think he wants to unilaterally enact all of this stuff. And if it doesn't come to that and players can kind of grab a hold of this and speed the game up a little bit on their own I think at that point all Major League Baseball has to do is really just market the game better and that's one of the things I want to see of more than anything because I feel like in other sports like in basketball and football um, now granted we're talking about two different sports but I feel like they market their game a little bit differently than what Major League Baseball does and I feel like with Major League Baseball I don't I think I wish pace of play was less of a concern and I wish it was more of a concern just to, like, the marketing side of baseball to really tell the stories of the athletes. Um, I, I don't know if they want to do, like, endorsement stuff or anything like that, but I would just love for Major League Baseball to make these guys even more of a household name. Um, what do you think about the pace of play stuff? Like, do you think any of that would really help the game, or do you think there's another way to help the game? 
I'll say it like this. If we're talking about making a game two hours, you know, like that's obviously that's not happening, and that would have a dramatic a dramatic change. Yeah. You know, it's like the difference between a forty-five minute TV show and a twenty-five and a twenty-five minute TV show. But we're literally talking about five ten minutes, and yeah, it is five ten minutes of bedtime. But you know, a football game is pretty much the same length. Yeah, exactly. They seem to be doing just fine with it. Yeah, I, I agree that I agree conceptually that you know speeding up the game, not in total time, but making the action a little more snappy is good. But I'm of the opinion that there's two places that MLB should really be investing in, and they are to some degree. First of all, so on social media, you know, the NFL, the NBA have 25, 30 million followers on Twitter, just for as an example. Okay. MLB, they have eight, I mean, million. Wait, they MLB, have how many? How many did you say? They have, like, they have like 25, 30 million followers on Twitter. Okay. MLB has about 8 million followers oh, on Twitter. Gosh. And, you know, the NFL is a $14 billion industry, but MLB is a $10 billion industry. And the NBA is, like, I think $7 billion. The NBA is a smaller industry than baseball. Mm-hmm. And they are completely wiping baseball to shreds on social media. It's the, new, it's, the NBA is the hottest thing for millennials, it's for young, for young kids. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't see kids in parks playing pickup games. You know, and this ties me into the second thing is you got to start with the little leagues. I was a kid, I was into little league, and that got me into baseball. You play the sport, you follow the sport. You know, I never played football as a kid, and I'm not a huge football guy. I play baseball. I'm a huge baseball guy. Start with the kids, and then work with work with the social media because that's the generation you're trying to attract. You know, people that are older, people that are. You know, they'll go to a baseball game for three hours and five minutes or two hours and 57 minutes. It's not a huge difference. Work with the kids. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's awesome. You know, start from the ground up and just, um, I mean, and I know Major League Baseball does a little bit of that, but it's real interesting because I didn't realize that, like, the NFL and the NBA had so many more followers than what, you know, Major League Baseball did. And, yeah, the NBA's doing something right, and I wonder if it has a lot to do with, you know, like, if you want to watch, like, any sort of basketball stuff, like ESPN shows a lot of basketball, TNT, you have all these different channels that cover basketball a lot. But if you want to watch any Major League Baseball coverage, you pretty much just have to watch MLB Network. And sometimes, to be honest with you, they're the most boring people on television ever. Um, I mean, they've got some good guys on there, but sometimes you just, like, you know, when you're watching, like, NBA on TNT and you've got Shaq and Charles Barkley going at it, Versus if you're watching MLB Network, and sometimes I don't know who I'm listening to, but they can be rather boring, man. So, yeah, right. I, um, I think those are some good points for sure because, like, I think we're in agreement on that to where baseball could do so much more than pace of play. Because at the end of the day, like, me and you know what baseball is because we grew up on baseball. And part of the reason for me wanting to have this podcast and especially to have guests like you on is really just – create some sort of platform to where people can talk about baseball and kind of have fun with it, you know? Um, and if I could create a podcast and maybe someone listens to it and watches a game of baseball, dude, I'd be happy, man. Um, but anyway, dude, I guess we'll wrap this up, man. We're about at the 30 minute mark. You've got to be on this podcast again, man. So we'll have to keep in touch after this. Um, All right. Yeah. But otherwise we'll go ahead and close it up. I'm here with Joe Pines. You can find him on Twitter at, Oh, I've got your Twitter. up. Yeah, Chi-Town. Chi-Town Steller. There it is. Um, Steller. Uh, S-H-T-E-L-L-E-R. Think Sean Peller, just without the on. Perfect. There it is, because I've got a slow internet connection on my cell phone. So thank you, Joe. You are listening to The Greatest Show on Dirt, and thanks for stopping by.